So let's begin with a word of prayer. Take a deep breath and just let your mind be free. Be free from the worries that are always in the back of your mind, nibbling away at your contentedness. Uh, from all the tasks and to-dos, let go for an hour or two. Be present. Take a deep breath. Rejoice because this is the day that God has made. God, we are so grateful to you that you have seen fit to bring the dawn to each of us and we have opened our eyes and we start a new day. We are grateful, God, that there is a, a brand new, clean slate for us to write on. A new page to our story. We pray, oh God, that you will be centermost in that story. And that when our vision strays, that you will remind us, help us to remember and be mindful of your presence. We thank you for ancient stories that are not ancient, but are our stories as well. Stories that continue to teach and enrich and cause us to flourish as your people. So I pray a blessing on this gathering today for the fellowship and the friendship and the hospitality and for those who serve us and work with us in making all things possible for Amanda and Adrian, for those who have provided food and beauty, and for the friendships that are around the table. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Through the fence, between the curling flower spaces, I could see them hitting. That's the first line from the movie from the book by William Faulkner, The Sound and the Fury. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. What's that from? A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Quiet as it's kept, there were no marigolds in the fall of 1941. That's Toni Morrison, the bluest eye. <clears throat> I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. Fyodor Dostoevsky, Notes from the Underground. All of these are opening passages of a book. And they're very important because those opening passages have a way of drawing us into the story. And they also have a way of reminding us of the story that's going to be unfolding. And so there's the opening passage of Exodus is no exception. It begins by picking up the story of Joseph and his brothers, and it provides us a reason for the Hebrew people to be in Egypt in the first place. So let's begin by reading Exodus. And we're going to be reading this in um, four sections. All right? So the first section that we're going to be reading is 1 through 7. Exodus 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, 
Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's our first section. So they didn't arrive as slaves. They arrived in this land as guests. And they became neighbors and friends. And they lived side by side with the Egyptians for well over 400 years. And so to put that in perspective, let's think about what was happening in the Americas 400 years ago. One was the English began a colony, Jamestown, in Chesapeake Bay. The French built Quebec in the 1600s. And the Dutch began their interest in a region that came to be known as New York. And then the very first slaves were brought from Africa to the Americas and were sold in auction at Fort Hampton, Virginia. All of those things happened 400 years ago. Now, think about that. You, it's ancient history in a way for us, isn't it? Even though you may have had relatives generation upon generation upon generation ago that settled in Jamestown or were brought over from Africa or, you know, every which way we found ourselves or were indigenous here already. But look at what's happened between then and now. So that's the span of time that we're talking about. And that puts you into perspective why the people were no longer had their identity as the Hebrew people, the Israelites anymore. The 400 years had passed since they had made their way down into Egypt. But very quickly, very quickly, the narrator moves the story away from Genesis, although we will be reminded of Genesis over and over again, because Genesis is where the plan all started and all the rest of scriptures and all of our lives is that plan unfolding of a relationship intimate and deep with God the creator. But the story moves away from Genesis into a new world. From 12 sons to what it said, 70, meaning the families of the sons, and then to a full land. So from a, a 12 to 70 to a population. And key to this section is the repetition of the phrase, even in this first seven verses, the children of Israel. Now, the children of Israel at the beginning means something different than it means in Exodus. Who is Israel? Jacob. Jacob is Israel. So when we talk about the children of Israel, Jacob's name was changed when he wrestled with the messenger from God, got, a hip, got his hip out of alignment, and um, begged for a, a blessing before the messenger left. And he was renamed Israel. So when we look in Genesis, we see when they talk about Israelites, the children of Israel, they're talking about 
the children of Jacob. And so, and, and so that's what we're, we're talking about. But in this, the opening of Exodus is a verbal link back to Genesis. But the children of Israel changes meaning because it no longer means the children of Jacob. Now the Israelites, the, the, that terminology in Exodus means children of God. It means all of the Hebrew people, not just the tribe, not just the 12 that came. So in Genesis, the way they describe the, the Israelites, when they describe it as a whole people, they only use it as a whole people twice. But when we get to Exodus, they use it over 125 times to describe the children of God who are the, uh, the Israelites. So this becomes a major shift in the, in the way we use that vocabulary. And the reader is asked to shift your attention to a new reality, that Israel equals the people of God, the people that God has chosen to forge a new identity. And this shift is accentuated in verse 6, because verse 6 says, not only has Joseph died, but who else has died? All of them, right? All of the original tribes that came down from Egypt into, uh, that came down from Canaan into Egypt have died and passed away. So all of the, the people, all of the Hebrew people that are now there have never known another place. This is where they have been born. This is where they've been raised. This is their, their identity. So not only has Joseph died, but the entire Genesis generation. And the death of a whole generation can accentuate a break in the continuity of the generations. For example, in the Civil War, it's at least those accounted for, there were over 758,000 people died in the Civil War. And that chopped up generations. Generations were lost. Families were were, were uh pulled apart where that unity that they had before was no longer present, and it began a new era. And then, of course, in the Holocaust, when six million people were eradicated, that was not just people, that, were in, that was entire bloodlines of people, where it ended with certain people who were exterminated in the Holocaust. And that created a loss of cultural and national memory, which is what it happened with the Exodus as well, implying that Israel has forgotten the Lord. So verse 7, the Israelites pronounced, pronounced fertility in Egypt. This is with intention because what this does is when it talks about the, that they were uh, fruitful and they multiplied, what this does is it recalls the divine promise of descendants. Now, what was promised to the descendants? What was promised to Abraham when he was called into the wilderness? What promise did God make? Do you remember? Yes. That nations would come from him. That, that there would be so many people that you couldn't even, they weren't even like the stars in the heavens or the grains of the sand. And they were like, what? We're just a few people. How is this going to happen? But this is a recalling of that divine promise and signals the beginning of the Israelite nation. 
the, the, the term fruitful and prolific, multiplying until land was filled with them. And we'll hear this over and over again. But it absolutely repeats verbatim, word for word, the original creation of humans in Genesis 1.28, the beginning of all humanity, when it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Word for word, same thing. Even though God has been a rare uh, a rare name, a rare entity, actually, in the story of Joseph and, and through the first verses of Exodus, you just don't hear much about God in those verses. Isn't that odd? Well, here is a reminder. This text reveals that God has been at work, at, at work behind the scenes in the history of these families in an unobtrusive way by making them so prolific that they're multiplying, that they can't even keep up with this population explosion. And God is at work. And God, Israel is God's starting point for realizing the divine intention for everybody. So God's work in creation provides the basis for God's work in redemption. And God's work in redemption fulfills God's work in creation. Let's read 8, 2 through 10 now. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, just a word that that word dread in the Hebrew means they were afraid of going to war with the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. They didn't see them as a threat. But the midwives, little did they know, but the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. 
When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. Oh, this must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister, meaning Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you wages. So the, the woman took the child and nursed it. Now understand this, that that child, according to scripture, stayed with them until the next verse, stayed with his mother until the next verse. When the child grew up, she, meaning the child's mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So a new king, that's how we begin that, that section. A new king who did not know Joseph. It's now several centuries, like we've said before, since the people of Israel arrived during a phantom and several pharaohs have gone over and over and over. And they were welcomed by Joseph. Welcomed by Joseph. But they've grown in number, they spread out. And this particular section of Exodus, this particular section with these stories that you, many of you have known since childhood, reveals and heightens the symbolic character of the Exodus narrative. Exodus is also symbolic of God's activity of creation in Genesis. So here, when we begin to see the action, the characters, the events, the retelling of the story, what we're actually seeing along with the story themselves is a cosmic struggle that's taking place between those whom God has created and God as the creator. And we can see this from the very beginning when human will began to assert itself in the garden and there was a split of purpose and destiny. And so since that time, God has been in this dance with humanity to bring them back into a relationship. So we see that being played out here. So here, the story of a chosen people is uh, being forged and delivered out of slavery narrows down to a story to, about a family and a person. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. So there's this rhythm. It's like, a, it's like the sea rushing in and then coming out. It's like, it's like breathing out and breathing in. You see this rhythm happening where God, where the ancients use a story of a person and a family, and then they expand that story to for us to remember that this is not just a story about them, it's a story about all of us. And then, they, and then they do that, and then they come back and narrow back in again about with one family and one figure, and then they come back out again. It's over and over, and you'll see that happen. The more you study scriptures, the more you'll recognize it. 
and you'll see it happen. So it narrows the story and conveys the archetypical relationship. Do you remember what we talked about when we talked about archetypes? Archetype is that beginning story. It's like the seal on the piece of paper. And then it's told, it's sealed, it's told over and over and over again with different characters, different setting, different eras. And so this is an archetypical story of God and human beings. So it's helpful sometimes to, to come close as a personal story, but then sometimes it's helpful to pull back and to see the larger story at work. So here's something that I think is so fascinating, that just in the midst of God's extraordinary creative activity in creation, there came the symbol of the snake, right? entering the scene, and the snake comes into the scene to subvert what God has done. So uh, the, that happens then, and then it also happens, there's another story about a brother that kills another brother. And so this, this uh, shift happens in the dynamic between even humans. But the culprit this time in this story is not a serpent. And it's not a brother against a brother. Who is the culprit that sneaks in and tries to subvert God, what God is doing among the people of Israel? Who is that person in this story? Pharaoh. Oh, you guys are so smart. Yes, it's a new king in Egypt. And the narrator introduces this Pharaoh with very terse language, which means they don't think much of this. Pharaoh. And it's not even just terse language. He's not even given a name, nor is his successor given a name. The focus is placed on him, not as a historical figure, but as a symbol of the anti-creation forces of death, which takes on the God of life. So the sole description of Pharaoh in this, in this opening uh, scenes is that he does not know Joseph. That's all we know about the Pharaoh, that he does not know Joseph. And Joseph, of course, in this particular, as we're standing, now we're standing back and we're looking bigger. So Joseph in this particular uh, description is more than a reference to an individual. He is the one in and through whom God has preserved the people alive. So the 12 brothers came down. Who did they run into? Their brother Joseph. If Joseph had not been sold into slavery, he wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have saved them. Then can you see how God's hand has been in every step, in every stumble, in everything that looks bad, but it's good? I mean, God has been a, a, a part of that all the way through it. So also this description contrasts with that given to God. Because what is said about God over and over again in Scripture is that God knows us. So the Pharaoh does not know Joseph, meaning the Pharaoh did not know the Hebrew people. The Pharaoh did not know the Israelites. But God knows God's people. So already we're setting that up as this adversarial, this Pharaoh who, who calls himself a God and the real true God of Israel. So knowing means more than just, hey, I know Gloria, I know Francie, I know Ruth, I know, 
No, it's not that. It's that you have an intimate knowledge of that other. And so in this sense, Pharaoh did not have a relationship at all with the people of uh, the Israelites. And God has an intimate and deep knowledge of us as the children of God. So who knows and who doesn't know is going to be a reoccurring theme in Exodus, but we'll have to wait till chapter 5, 6, and 7 to talk about who knows and who doesn't know. So oppression is the prevailing theme in this unit. And under a regime of slavery, subjects become objects. They were no longer a people with an identity, with a language, with a God that they worshiped, with separate clothing, with all of this. They were slaves. They did not even have their own culture. And the words are piled up in 1, 13 through 14. It's called a synathroismus. I know that's a big old word, but what it means is it's a rhetorical form for piling up words. And we can see that happening in this, and we can see it happening later in the... Um, and they're usually piled up adjectives, and they're usually a piled up uh, adjectives of invectives. So, for example, uh, Shakespeare uses uh, this device when he says, who can be wise, amazed, temperate, furious, loved, loyal, neutral in a moment? So you see, you pile up those words, and they just did that. They're ruthless. They made them bitter. They all in just these few verses. So and so that has a, a, a way of telling us, a way of pounding the, the nail in the coffin of relationship with uh, Pharaoh. The Hebrews who have been just been identified by as a people. And when I say just been identified, I mean God has called them out. So 500 years earlier, they had been identified. They had been given a new identity as the sons of Jacob and the sons of Israel. And they had come into Egypt to be this people. And now they are a people who are in the process of losing all their identity. And they're slaves of other people. They have nothing of their own. But from Pharaoh's perspective, there is only one people that matter or that are even people in Egypt. And who are those people? Egyptians, that's right. It's like I've heard stories about Maine. I don't know anything about Maine, but I've heard stories about Maine that if you went there and lived there for 80 years, they'd say, huh, newcomer, you know? Well, that's how it was with, uh, with Egypt. They're like, you've only been here for 400 years, so you're not really an Egyptian. You're, you're a foreigner, and that's how they treated them. Before there can be an escape from this situation, the people, these people, they have to regain their identity. They have to become a people again, a people of God, the Israelites. So God calls on ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary activities. And the language of affliction and burden is a recurrent motif that you're going to see over and over again in Exodus. And it's so, uh, it, it's so um, rife in this that it's incorporated into Israel's confession of faith. And if you want to read uh, Israel's confession of faith, I just attached it to the back of your second page of your notes. You can read that sometime. But it also appears in the laws in, in um, chapter 22. But here's a really important point that I think is so important for us to remember. And it was important for the Jewish uh, nation to remember as well. 
The memory of God's deliverance has an intention to inform Israel's relationship with the less fortunate among them. Did you know that? That was the intention of it. Israel's memory of oppression, they celebrate that every Shabbat, every Sabbath. They celebrate in a way to remembrance and memorialize, and then on the Passover particularly, liberation from slavery in Egypt, and that's for a purpose. It's not to parade its past suffering in order to occasion pity or guilt from others. The recalling of oppression is to lead to an identification with those who suffer. We will remember our suffering so that we can suffer with you. Moreover, while the oppression of Israel will continue to be noted, the focus will be on God's intention to deliver. So therefore, the memory of the past is to be used to center the people on what God has done for them and how they are to respond to others who are unfortunate. And shouldn't, should that not be the way our suffering serves us? that we're not too quick to let go of our suffering. We don't want to be paralyzed in our suffering, but we want to remember enough to empathize and love and to come alongside those others who suffer. And also, to be honest with you, in our communion, when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus in our the body and, and the bread, this is also a reminder to us to remember the suffering of all of those others who do not yet even know the story. It's significant, I think, that the first names that appear in this account of God at work in history are two women, Shipra and Pua. They are the first to speak back to Pharaoh, and yet they are among the most anonymous, silent masses. In, in other words, they had no identity. They had no property. They had no rights in those days. And it's pretty ambiguous in their identity. They were midwives to the Hebrew women, or were they Hebrew midwives to everybody? We don't know. But they were among the lowest social and economic strata of that society. It's a story centered on the act of civil disobedience. They didn't go out and raise an army. They didn't talk it up and get a rally going or anything like that. They simply didn't do what the king asked them to do. It's as simple as that. But you know it's not as simple as that because when the king tells you to do something, you are putting your life on the line when you don't do it. They had a, a pretty thin excuse, I think. But it seemed to work, along with uh, help from God, I'm sure. But when confronted by Pharaoh, they utter the first words of resistance to Pharaoh's unselfish question, why did you let them live? They respond with the story of the vitality of the Hebrew women. And now God enters the story for the first time. God enters the story in 2021 by rewarding the midwives for their identification and obedience. So the first time since the Joseph story, we have God back in the picture, and God is rewarding these women. And what did he reward them with? Families. That's right. Let's keep multiplying, in other words. Families. Rewarded them with families. 
So the wider theme of Israelite fertility and Pharaoh's oppression continues. But the narrative lens is now focused on a single Israelite family. So here we, we've been stepped back, right? And now we take a deep breath and we come close to this single family. And it's the it beginning with the birth of Moses and ending with the birth of his son Gershon. So the story uses literary techniques and borrowed legends from other uh, from other uh, uh, narratives to create a symbolism of this primary message. But it's important to understand that in verse two two, the narrator wants it to make perfectly clear what line Moses comes from. Because he takes great pains to say, the Levite woman, who is Moses' mother, who was married to a Levite man, do you see how clear he wants it to be? He doesn't want there to be any mistake about Moses being from the priestly tribe. The Levite woman sees that her infant was a fine baby. Now, this term, fine baby, in Hebrew is the exactly the same term that God used seven times in creation when he said, it is good. The exact same term. Isn't that, oh, isn't that so beautiful? And so in this, we don't have God uttering these words. We have Jochebed, which is uh, Moses' mother, uttering these words. So the phrase recalls for us that the, the papyrus basket plastered with vitamin and pitch is from the same Hebrew word that was used to build Noah's Ark with vitamin and pitch. So once again, we are taken back to the promises of God now being realized in this tiny little ark that Moses is put in and sent down the river. So in biblical, in biblical fashion, then redemption comes from the most remarkable place. This is just like God, let me tell you. You think God's coming in the front door, or at least you're knocking, and God is coming in through the back door, up through the cellar, or whatever, taking the roof off your house, coming that way. God is going to show up in places you did not expect. So the most remarkable place, where is this redemption coming from? From Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's daughter. The writers make a point of emphasizing the prince's knowledge of what was happening to the Hebrew people and taking pity on them. And she makes a public decoration of that pity. There's no sense that she's hiding anything, is there? Do you get that sense at all? It feels quite out in the open to me. And then she, the story creates this web, this beautiful conspiracy. I, I mean... When they say, let's let all the women live, you know, they're in their own threat. They can't do anything to us. They need to go back and remember this story of these five women who changed the course of Pharaoh and aligned themselves with the, with the will of God. These five women, Jochebed, mother of Moses, Miriam, sister of Moses, Bitia, Pharaoh's daughter, Shipra and Pua, the two midwives that said, oh, we're a little bit more intimidated by God than we are you, Pharaoh. So all these five women changed the course of history. The story of Moses functions. So we then come to the story of Moses that functions as a paradigm or a typology for Matthew's story of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? 
For example, both accounts, Moses and Jesus, God's plan for the beginning has a very fragile beginning. I mean, Moses is born and all the boys are being thrown in the river and killed. It's a very fragile beginning. Jesus is born. Where is Jesus born? At a time in Roman oppression and in a, in a stable, it's very fragile, both of them. And they're also, we have Pharaoh on the one hand trying to kill all the babies. We have Herod on the other hand trying to kill all of the babies again. That's why it says Rachel cry could be heard in Ramah. It says that in the New Testament when Herod was killing the babies. That's a, that's a cry back to the children being killed under Pharaoh's rule. So, in, uh, so the pattern of threat remains between Pharaoh and Herod, and the child of promise is in danger. And in both, the child serves as the not yet revealed instrument of God's intervention. And in both cases, the thread on which everything hangs is exceedingly thin. God seems to be taking such enormous risks with this plan to let everything ride on five women and then a last-minute flight to Egypt by Mary, Joseph, and the baby. And in contrast, the power of the world seems so impressive and so invulnerable. And, but any time that God's salvation appears on the horizon, the, the powers that control, the powers that oppress are always going to feel threatened, and they're going to try to retaliate against that. So Pharaoh senses the threat, and he devises this plan long before the Hebrews are the least prepared to resist it. And, the, and, and, and we have, on the other hand, Herod enacting his terrible, terrible plan. But in both cases, the plans fail. It fails for Pharaoh and it fails for uh, Herod because the ones that God is sending are, are able to make it through that. The Exodus writer is really happy to let us know about the rescue of Pharaoh's daughter. And Matthew lets the Magi come and visit the child and the child and Jesus is able to escape. And so we have these happy pieces of redemption. But you know what? Both stories also bear testimony to the suffering of the people which accompanies that redemption. Because as in the same way in Pharaoh and Herod, Jesus lived and Moses lived, but their children were slaughtered in both cases, all of the other children. So redemption comes in both cases, but it's not accompanied by the martyrdom of brave partisans, but by the senseless murder of children. So let's move on now to 11 through 22. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their first forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. 
The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. So this section consists of three stories from Moses, and it comes in contact with three different groups of people, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, and now the Midianites, because Moses becomes one of them. And every single incident of Moses, of these three um, stories, functions in, with, in four ways. One, it's a transition to what follows. There will be some, it moves the story forward. Two, it identifies the adult Moses as Hebrew, not Egyptian. And it anticipates key events in the following narratives. And then the fourth is it characterizes Moses, especially as the one who responds to injustice. So notice that Moses' own point of view is very minimal. We don't really hear that much from Moses. We hear from other people talking about the events. So we are immediately informed that a lot of time has passed because now we have, we have Moses has run away and now he's hiding up in the hills, and now he's being a good shepherd and being rewarded with a wife and a son. And so there's a lot of time that's passed. And the, and the narrator doesn't waste any time in making it clear that Moses identifies himself with Israel. He is an Israelite. That's how the murder came about, and that's how his being in a, shep a shepherd in the hills um, uh, came about. But... Moses embodies Israel in its own life experiences also. He becomes a subject of a murderous edict of the Pharaoh, just like the Pharaoh and Israel. He has to flee from Egypt to the wilderness, just like the people <clears throat> will be called to do. And he has to testify to becoming a sojourner in a foreign land, just like the Israelites. So in a number of ways, Moses is both relives the fate of his people and he anticipates their future. So let's read 23 through 25 now. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out of the slavery. Their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites. God took notice of them. So meanwhile, back in Egypt, the people are crying out. Moses is far away from this now. He has nothing to do with it. But it's the people that are crying out, all of which serve to get our attention. And the words, again, are piled up in these few words. They're piled up like they were in 13, 1, 13, and 14, in that Sinathro Isthmus. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery. They cried out. They cried for help. God heard their groaning. It goes on and on and piles that up. And it's the first mention of Israel's cry out. And it's engaged in public outcry. 
And it names, in this particular scripture, in this section, it names the object of their pain. What is the object of their pain? That they are slaves. That is the object of their pain, and it's named here. And then the most exciting thing of all, this is where it gets exciting. The narrator now brings God into the heart of the story. So before we've been laying the groundwork, we've been seeing what us people have been doing, and God has pretty much been behind the scenes, multiplying and making fruitful, and we haven't seen how God is a part of this story yet, and now it's, oh my goodness, it's like a whirlwind coming in, because all of a sudden now we're brought into, God is at the heart of the story now. God does what? He hears them cry. And what happens next is the most exciting thing in the entire world from here on out. So stay tuned for next week. <laughs> and that is how we're going to end today. So you all have been a wonderful, wonderful listening ear. I appreciate that. I hope that you have fruitful and wonderful not fruitful and multiply, but I hope that you have fruitful conversations with your small groups. And I do hope you multiply. Invite your neighbors. Come on over. It's not too late. We're only on the second chapter of Exodus. Okay? All right.